Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with M.K. Palmore. We are all lifelong learners, and nowhere is this more relevant than in the practice of leadership. Our goal is continual learning and improvement. Let's get after it. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey folks, this is MK Palmore. Welcome to another edition of the Leadership Student Podcast. As if you've been a subscriber to this podcast, we try and get folks on that have a variety of experiences in the leadership realm. I'm excited to have in the virtual studio, Confidence Stavely, who is a a leading leader and practitioner in the cybersecurity industry. Confidence uh, has a super interesting story, I think, and I'm hoping that the listeners and guests We'll get a lot out of hearing her talk about her frameworks and how she approaches the subject of leadership. Confidence, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much, MK. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really wonderful to have you. So I've been watching you, your star shine on on the internet and social media now for the better part of it. Probably two years or so, we've probably been connected and I've been back and forth. We had the opportunity to actually meet in person Mm -hmm. not too long ago, and that was exciting to get an opportunity to meet you. Talk to us a little bit about your start in the in the tech industry and maybe pepper in a little bit about where you're from and what it looks like from that vantage point. Okay, that's a very interesting question. And I hope you're ready for the answer because it's quite a, a bit of a long story. I'll try to make it as short as I can so I don't bore our listeners. So I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I've always wanted to be in tech or I've always wanted to be in cyber. It was just sheer happenstance. I'm from... The African continent. And if you are Asian or African, you understand what I'm about to say. Um, a lot of times the parents make up their minds about what you should become and then advise you with like they're suggesting, but I'm not exactly suggesting to pursue that career path. So I'll give you examples. Uh, quite a talkative when you were growing up. They would say, oh, you should definitely be a lawyer. So that was what happened with me. My parents saw that I was going, doing great with the sciences and said, oh, you should definitely be a doctor. And so they sold the idea to me for so long that I thought that actually that's my dream. I want to be a doctor. So to give you again another bit of a background about where I'm from, neither of my parents are university graduates. So I am like the first in my lineage to be, to hold a degree, right? So So tell uh, the the audience what what country uh, in Africa you're from. I'm from Nigeria. Okay. There you are growing up as as a young woman in Nigeria. Your parents had some thought or idea as to what kind of career they thought you might matriculate into. But you were telling me offline that you had a little bit of a gap year that that you had some exposure to STEM mm-hmm. technology. Talk a little bit about that and what kind of impact it had on you. Okay, so I went off to learn about computers and begin to explore how to use them. Started off with you just learning basic office packages. And then I graduated to learning about CSS, learning how to code in Java, learning how to code in C and then C Sharp and Java at some point. And it was in that time I knew that I wanted to be in tech because I felt alive just creating things, just writing little programs and having things move on my screen that I, I had programmed. I felt very happy about it. Around the same time as well, my my admission had come in, the gap year had ended and my admission had come in to study medicine. And so I needed to do some convincing to my parents that I wanted to be in tech. 
But unfortunately for me, there was no reference point as compared to medicine where we had people around us that had become medical doctors and were successful and were leading good lives for themselves. But we didn't have a reference point for technology, especially women in technology. It, it was an uphill task convincing them. But what I did was I bought cardboards. At the time, I also didn't have access to a laptop of my own or a computer of my own. So I, I couldn't do PowerPoint slides or something like that. So I just had to buy cardboard papers and made my presentations using the presentation using the cardboards. But the key thing that I think caught my parents' attention was my passion. And I used my mother's words against her. My mom used to say that you can't outperform a passionate person. And I, I keep saying these words because these words have been like guiding, they've been guiding pillars for me. Being passionate always put me at the forefront because that's exactly what I would live for, right? I would do everything to keep gaining knowledge and things like that. So my parents could tell that I was very passionate, whether or not they understood what I was saying or whether or not they could see the prospects I was trying to paint. And so they said, you know what, go on and do what you want to do. And I went on, I got an advanced diploma in software engineering, got a scholarship to do uh, a BSc in IT and business information systems, because for me, I've always wanted to have the technical skills and and the business skills as well. And I think that was one of the best things I also, best decisions I made. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't know how impactful that combination was. Now I'm beginning to see how it is. And from there on, I went on to do a bit a master's again with a scholarship in IT management. It was during my master's that I got uh, my first exposure to cybersecurity through an elective called cryptography. So that in a not so short nutshell is exactly how I got into tech. That's an awesome story. And I love that quote that uh, you count. Say it again. You can't outwork. You can't outperform a passionate person. You can't outperform a passionate person. I love it because I think there's so much involved in, I, there's so much of a person's grit, resilience, their desire to really be successful, certainly in the technology industry, that that make up the qualities of someone that's able to, to, to grow and thrive in this industry. And you are certainly an example of that. That's, a, that's an outstanding and interesting pathway. Can you talk a little bit more about the perception of women in STEM either in Nigeria or on the African continent, because I know it's part of how you show up in the industry now in terms of we're going to get to a conversation about the nonprofit that you stood up, but talk a little bit about the perceptions of women in STEM. Um, the perception is changing. It's getting better as we go along, but it, it was before now very, very manic, if I was to put it that way. You needed to be a certain way to be seen as as good prospect, maybe more a tomboy, basically not having a life. Someone who was you had to be you had to be someone in a particular mode to fit. And that's why when I came along I I made sure to stay true to myself because I don't look like what was the norm. Yeah, I when I don't look like what was the norm. I'm not wearing makeup today, but I wear makeup on a good day, right? <laughs> and be glamorous most times, wear my very nice dresses, really fitted, wear some nice shoes. Back in the day, that was the thing. It was, you find a woman who is in STEM or is in tech, her hair has to be a mess for her to look like she really knows what she's doing. Walking up this way, glamorous, 
is she here for some fashion show or something she definitely won't have anything upstairs so that is like the stereotype that has been you have to look a certain way you maybe you need to dress more like a man wear clothes that are bad, badly fitted and things mm-hmm. like that and then it was okay uh, i think she knows what she's doing she'll look like she has something to share something of value so that's one side there's also the issues around women being underestimated especially from the technical front right it is just most times it seems like you're being thrown the bone or you're just being pitied up to the table not necessarily that you have value to bring and so for me i've gotten a sense of that over time and i think it's been a good and a bad problem long together it's a good it's a good problem because when you're always underestimated you will almost always overperform because people don't expect you to to be the way you are and then they 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 have an experience of you and it's mind blowing so i look at that as i look at that positively i like i choose to look at it positively and i look at what the what being underestimated does for me i also find that women at certain ages in their career they're usually discriminated against just few weeks ago i would say two weeks ago i i had a young lady who was very good she had she did so well at technical uh, assessments for a role but she was not offered the role because she was a married mother so those issues still really are things that we see especially for roles in these socks for example where they work 24 hour shifts women are not given those opportunities because there is this thinking that they will not be able to balance their lives out but these women have properly thought through how to walk the different phases of life how to juggle all of their balls and keep them in the air but somehow these women are not exactly given opportunities like they would like the younger versions of them would have gotten if they put them side by side these are some of the issues and some of the few issues aside the fact that for example women are less prioritized for education as well and i'll share a bit of this story because i i, I always share it when i want to make i want to help people picture what the issues are when I was seven years old, I won a competition, an ASA competition, and I got home. My father, by the way, is one of the my biggest fans ever, one of the biggest people in my life that is constantly cheerleading me. And then I came home. My father had gotten wind of the fact that I had gotten this thing. So he was waiting for me outside. And then I ran into his arms, and then he hugged me. My father said, in you, I have 10 sons. Now at seven, I didn't understand what he was saying. I was like, okay, so he has ten sons in me. What does that mean exactly? But as I grew older, I began to find out that having being a boy or being a young man was more valuable, in quotes, than being a woman. So you find that a lot of families were prioritizing educating the young man if push came to show, for example, sometimes even taking out the push coming to show financially, right? Aside the hard times. But whenever there was a hard time, the person who paid the price for that hard time would be the girl that doesn't get education. So there are all of these combining factors and why women are very disadvantaged generally in tech on the continent of Africa and also why we even have way fewer women in cybersecurity on the continent. And if you're looking looking at my sweatshirt, I don't know if you're going to have a video of this, but then if you're looking at my sweatshirt, you will see the statistic here that we have 50% of the population as women on the continent, but just 9% of the workforce is made up of women. So these are the issues combined. I love that sweatshirt, by the way. And yes, we will be using the we will be using the video so the audience will get an opportunity to see it as well. We we uh, all are, are fully aware, or at least folks should be, 
of the disparities in terms of the cybersecurity workforce, the uh, absence of representation from women and people of color in the workforce. So let, let's use that as a pivot point. Let's jump right into the uh, CyberSafe Foundation that you founded. Talk to me a little bit about why you thought it was important to start up that foundation and a little bit about what you guys do in the landscape. Thank you so much, MK. So the thing is, for CyberSafe Foundation, again, like with a lot of things that I've shared on this call, at the time I was leading the cybersecurity practice consulting in Nigeria and I was doing great work around protecting enterprises. But then when I had a cyber attack hit really close to home, I had my mom as a victim. I knew that I, I, I should do more to protect more people. And so I looked at really bridging the space between the gap between what the enterprises were doing to ensure that data is protected and information systems are secured. And then the gap between that and what the government was doing to, to protect the citizenry. And so that is exactly the space where CyberSafe plays. And what we do is we drive safe and inclusive access to digital. Now, the inclusion is actually the biggest portion of the bit of work we are doing um, because we've seen that with all of what I've even shared um, earlier on this podcast, that there are certain groups that are underrepresented and left behind in some way or that are disadvantaged from the socioeconomic angle, for example. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that those groups of people or organizations are catered to because they still face cyber attacks. And so that is where we play. And we do this across the continent. Currently, we have reached in 22 African countries. But then bringing me back to maybe one of my favorite programs and on CyberSafe does, and one that is very dear to my heart, which is the Cyber Girls Fellowship. For me, it was doing two key things with cyber because we always think about cybersecurity and we think about protecting enterprises. But what we may not see is that cybersecurity can also be a socioeconomic impact tool, right? And what do I mean by this? It's, it's, a, it's a, an in-demand skill. It's a high-paying skill. And so... When we bring in women, for example, on the represented groups and we bring in these sort of people and skill them up, what happens is they're able to earn significantly more, live better lives, and then have that ripple effect in their community. So we've seen historically that on the average, uh, most of our alumni come out of the program and they have at least a 400% increase in their income. Now, that's a big deal. Because, and, and that range is way higher than that, but on average, it's 400% that we get to see very often. So 400% increase in income means they get to live better lives. They get to live decent lives. They have decent work opportunities. And so for me, that was exactly what I was looking to do. Close the skills gap that exists on the continent and also close the gender gap that exists on the continent. And I like to say this a lot. You should count as a sound bite now for me. Is that I, I don't want women to get jobs because they're women. I don't want any underrepresented groups to get a job because they are underrepresented groups. But then we just should get a job because they are the best for the job and they are skilled for the job. But then how do we get them skilled for the job in the first place? Mm -hmm. That's where programs like Cyber Girls then exist to make sure that they are competing favorably because they are skilled and not that they don't have the skills. They keep going for the job opportunities and they don't get them because, again, they are not the best for the jobs because they are not skilled for the job. So the Cyber Girls program exists to provide mentorship and cybersecurity training for young women on the continent age 18 to 28 for free for seven months and then walk these people right into the workforce. 400% increase in earning capability is a phenomenal statistic. You are literally changing people's lives. 400% increase as you were 
touching on, we're talking about changing the trajectory of people's lives by just exposing them to and preparing them for uh, a career in cybersecurity. Take me back though, to the, the leadership component of this, which is what gave you the strength to understand that you could stand up an organization like this, pull the elements together and then build something that might be impactful the way that you're describing. Because you're talking about current status quo, which is, as you indicated, in 22 other countries uh, on the continent of Africa, probably have impacted scores, if not thousands of trained individuals. How do you get the the genesis for the idea and talk to me about actually standing it up and maybe I'm going to ask you about funding for it as well, but talk to me about standing the organization up. Okay. I don't know exactly how to answer that question, but I would say that I'm generally very pulled in and very motivated by the problems. I'm again, just speaking to my optimism as well. I'm, I like to see opportunities, uh, problems as opportunities. So if there's a problem, then um, and that problem is challenging to solve. I want to be there. And if it's something that really I feel changes something significant and it's within my power to, um, whether immediate power or future power to solve, because again, sometimes you take on things to tackle and you're not, you don't know that you have it in you sometimes to do those things and you find out that you stretch yourself a bit and you're able to do them. So I, I enjoy challenges. I live and breathe and get my adrenaline from solving problems. So this was one problem that I saw that was very dear to my heart. And I could see the ripple effects of doing this work and doing it well. I get countless messages. Today, I woke up to a message from a, a girl in northern part of Nigeria that she finished the program eight months after she got a job, which is actually a very long time to wait, given her data usually it's within uh the first six months a majority of our fellows get hired but she waited eight months and she got this job she's currently working with the threat intelligence team of the law enforcement in the country and she's doing well for herself and she sent me a message talking about how she's now an international she said she's in the, an international cyber security professional because she's been flown around the place now for different um, other things and she was expl- expressing how life-changing it is there's a girl in south africa for example that went from being the waiter at a restaurant working for a company that's listed on Johannes Box Stock Exchange as a cybersecurity professional. And looking at all of those people, they, they were not people before. They were visions, right? They were, they were people that had possibilities that I imagined because I needed to solve the problem that I had seen walking into rooms and being looked at as, an, as though, what exactly are you doing here? We're expecting a man. And let me share a very funny story. It wasn't it my maiden name at the time is usually is known to be a name for men. So I would get things like Mister Dad. I'll be called Mister a lot of t- a lot of times because you you won't guess this is the woman you're emailing with. So I got a lot of that, and because that was the norm, so I wanted more women because I knew that the problems we we're trying to solve required a more diverse group of people innovatively collaborating to solve the problems. And for me, it was about that challenge of and that that beauty of picking up that picking up the problem and trying to solve it the joy of solving that problem every day i haven't finished solving it by the way sure i'm not sure there's an end to this exactly there are many challenges along the way to getting that on but it's rewarding every day to wake up to those sort of messages the ones i don't know about for example that are happening around the place because of the work we're doing it's just very exciting how, how have you been able to scale? I, I also lead a lead a nonprofit, and we're just based here in the U.S. We have ambitions of 
exploding beyond the borders of the U.S. But when I think about 22 different countries on the continent of Africa, one, how do you get folks to stand up and lead in all of those various regions? How do you scale your efforts? Or what's that, what's that look like? How have you been, did, was that intentional or was that just grassroots growth? I would say it's grassroots growth, a combination of things. There's something about the African continent a lot of people don't exactly get yet. We are very hungry people, and that's not a negative thing. It's a very positive thing in the sense of what I'm saying. We're hungry for change. We're hungry for good. We're hungry for getting better. We're hungry for doing better. And that's the general thing for most young people. So you'll find that young people gravitate towards things that improve their lives. And when they see these kind of opportunities, they just grab it. So what, what that was exactly our experience starting off the Cyber Girls program. Initially, it was just in Nigeria, and we scraped bottom of the pot to make sure that we're able to have this in six physical locations. We had partners that came together and just supported us in the beginning. But then it was we started getting very huge demands from outside of Nigeria. And that's another key thing as well. The continent has very similar underlying problems. So half the time, if you're able to solve a problem, one part of the continent that is a very major part of the continent, so I would say major, the biggest drivers of, of the economies, the, the African economies, which, for example, one of the biggest GDP, GDPs is from Nigeria, from the continent, right? Mm-hmm. So you're looking at in Nigeria, you're looking at Kenya, you're looking at the South Africa. If you're able to solve problems in any of these places, you're most likely going to be able to replicate that solution across the continent. And for us, that's what we experienced. From the next cohort, we it was just a fluid thing to move across border, change the model. Again, what we're doing is we are learning and adjusting the model as we go along and we're able to then move across. But I, I would say that we've had, we've been lucky with some support from organizations that uh, we're able to get funding for. We have also been very lucky with getting some lot of volunteers to really help with, with the work we're doing. And then I, I think what, what has also really helped us is the quality of training partners we've been able to secure across board as well. What have you done in the way of hardware partnerships? Do you have corporate sponsors that support hardware or do folks show up with laptops? Do they show up with the capability to engage from a hardware standpoint? We've had serious challenges with devices. And when I share about the barriers to entry for women in cyber, one of the key things I speak about is access. And from the access point of view, it's not just access to the trainings, it's also access to the learning infrastructure and the tools. And the hardware just falls right in. Actually, during our first cohort, the girls that were training socioeconomically disadvantaged young women most of the time, right? And they can't afford the laptop of their own, but they can't learn cybersecurity on their mobile phones, for example. You need a laptop to do just about anything that's meaningful. So what we have done in the past is we have used crowdfunding models. We have people donate laptops sometimes towards in bulk. And then we have also people throwing donations over time for laptops for fellows. So I was sharing just before we came on live about a time when my heart was broken by the fact that in a particular hub where we had 20 girls learning physically, there was only one laptop that we could provide, which was what we provided at the beginning. But then they were learning Linux and they had to practice the commands and things like that. And the girl in question texted me saying, oh, I didn't get a chance today to practice. 
and it just tore my heart in pieces. So on that day, that was the first day we started our crowdfunding efforts. I put out a tweet asking for people to, to donate their fairly used laptops that were in good shape. Yeah. And we got such a rousing response. That tweet, I think, reached over 100,000 people because other people picked up on the... I think the energy in the tweet, because I was really, my heart was really torn, I poured my, my, my heart into the tweet. And I, I think it must have read that way. And it just flew. It became viral. And we got a lot of laptop donations. And we've been getting a lot of those sort of donations. And then what we do is maybe we upgrade the hardware. We spend a bit some time to upgrade the hardware and get it up to speed and then ship it off to the people who need it the most. But that has been a, a challenge. It's still a challenge now because we can't still provide laptops to all our girls. In the current cohort, we have 500 of them in 22 countries. Not just the laptop, but the logistics of getting the laptops to them in different countries can cost an arm and a leg. So... We we're trying to do as much as we can and hoping that with more funding down the line, we'll be able to, as part of the welcome pack to come into the program, give them laptops that they'll be able to use. But for now, it's still a work in progress. Tell me where you are five years from now. What's the what's your career look like? What are you engaged in? What's on the horizon? For in five years, I think I really want to move more into the policy side of things. I know that a lot of the work I'm doing is action oriented, but getting skills into skills for the right people, designing programs that are for the people that I really need to reach. But I think that scaling that up would be through policy. What sort of policy allows, what sort of policy influence can I can I contribute that makes it easy for us to have the best of talents have access to opportunities within the continent and outside of the continent. What sort of policies would drive, say, digital infrastructure exploding on the continent and outside of the continent in a way that really helps us to grow cyber talent? What sort of policies will really protect and drive the ecosystem towards innovating and creating solutions as well as against just consuming security tools created elsewhere? That is where my mind is. Being able to, to stay the ecosystem, uh, stay, the, stay the community, both in in Africa and outside of Africa to innovate more. So I think that policy is a key area that I, I really like to uh, move into and and really provide value to the industry from. What role do you think leadership will play in helping to solve the cybersecurity workforce challenge? The first role leadership is going to play in solving the challenge is visionary thinking and bringing those visions to reality or to fruition. And I think that's a major job of leaders, being able to dream and, and envision something and being able to pull people together to make that vision a reality. So I, I believe that's the major role that um, leadership is going to play. The quality of leadership, the quality of innovation that we're able to experience as an industry in the next five, 10 years is going to be dependent on the quality of leaders that as an industry we also have. Another key thing that I think that our industry needs to get better at and also the leadership needs to contribute to is managing stakeholders. We have issues where, for example, we are not able to secure enough funding for our programs 
when programs, cybersecurity programs that are not from a non not for profit perspective here, from an enterprise perspective, if you're managing, say, uh, a cybersecurity program, for example. So these are the key some key areas where we need to be able to drive uptake of our cybersecurity programs from a leadership perspective and get the right stakeholders around getting us the resources required to secure the enterprises, for example. So leadership, for me, the major role that leadership is going to play is in innovation and in coordination of efforts and support towards solving the industry's biggest problems. So I've seen you, at least it appears from the outside, you're flying around the globe evangelizing and messaging this challenge to to folks. I've seen you spend a ton of time here in the U.S. on it. Do you think that we're doing all of the things that we need to do to help close this gap? Or are there there clear things missing from the current efforts that you see underway? I think something very clear that's missing is there seems to be quite a lot of leap service around inclusion. Inclusion looks very nice. Pardon me also to use this word quite sexy now. But then going past that and past ticking the box and looking good, do we truly understand how inclusion helps the bottom line? Do we truly understand how important inclusion is? Are we doing what we need to do to drive inclusion, backing it up with action and sustained action? I find that's a question that a lot of times get a maybe. We need to do past talking. Evangelism is great, and that's what we're doing. I'm doing that as well, and I'm not tired of it. But we need to, at this point in 2023, we need to begin to move past just talking about these things as problems and things that we need to do to beginning to see more uptake of and very intentional moves around solving the inclusion challenge. Because not only will inclusion help us to close the, the talents and skills gap that we're having currently, but inclusion is also going to really drive innovation. The data is there to prove it, right? So we need to do more around intentionally driving inclusion, making sure that action is followed up with our talking, and that action is not for the time being, that is sustained. I want to begin to see three-year partnerships of, of funding partners for diversity, go three-year partnerships. Those are the kind of things that I'd like to see. I'd like to see companies say, you know what? We want to make sure that we, you get 2% of our profit will go towards your programs mm-hmm. you know, for the next three years because this work needs to be done and needs to be done systematically and it needs to be done thoroughly and it needs to be done over time to really make sense. Everything you said is music to my ears. The, the idea of making intentional and sustainable support of these various efforts that are underway, your organization, CyberSafe, the one that I lead, Cyversity, other organizations on the landscape. We're doing such, I think, great work, but oftentimes I think we're constrained in terms of how it is that we help folks because we're limited to this funding cycle of raising money every year to fund individual programs. And I think we're all looking for those those partners that are willing to make a multi-year commitment so that we can really begin, I think, to drive impact Uh, around the industry. So everything you said just totally resonates with me. Sounds like your dad might have been a pretty impactful person in terms of your, in your mom as well. Your ideas around what it meant to lead. Any, any thoughts around like things that they might've told you over the years or things that they told you when you were young that have helped build your leadership character and your leadership profile? Yes. My, my father always believed in doing hard things. Mm -hmm. I, I say that my father didn't raise me like a girl, 
<laughs> because I now get what the difference was because I didn't see the difference in my house then. I have brothers, by the way. But then I'm coming out of society. I'm coming out of that house. I came out of the house, say, 30 years ago. And I, could t- I can now tell what that difference is. And I can tell you for a fact that my father always said something around solving difficult or rather doing difficult things. He said that the harder it was to do something, the more rewarding it was. And sometimes I don't quite agree with him because sometimes the, the Roomba does cleaning the floor more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but, but looking at it from another perspective of taking on very tough things, I'm hardly ever afraid of anything. If I want to do something, what I just do is, what I just do is start with it in bits and I, I get it done. But there's another thing that has really played a major role in my leadership journey. It's, it's a simple, it's a simple poem, very simple. You most likely would know it. Um, and this is how it goes: Good, better, best. I will never rest until my good is better and my better best. So just that mindset of that growth mindset and just wanting to always be better and always asking myself, is there a way to do this better? Has just really enveloped everything i've done every single thing i'm always asking how can this be done better i'm always looking back how can this be done better oh i did great here yeah but after this chat with mk are there better ways i could have answered this question sometimes you can feel like over beating yourself up but yes it's just something that has become a major part of my growth journey as well so i would say that has really shaped me that's a uh, fantastic note i think to end the conversation because you touch on what resonates with the naming of this Leadership Student Podcast, the idea that we're all on an eternal journey, certainly as it relates to leadership. And the, that idea resonates with me and I think others. How can folks find you? That's actually a silly question because you're all over social media. But if folks want to find you on social media, what's the best way to do that? I live on LinkedIn. <laughs> no, it's, it's amazing. Keep it up. That's how we found each other. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I love the collaboration and look forward to really working with you in the future. So LinkedIn and where else? LinkedIn, just set for confidence stably on LinkedIn. Um, I've become act- more active on on Twitter and on Instagram as a senior tweets. But if you check, if you still search my name, confidence stably, you'll find me easily there and on Instagram and yeah. That's about it. I also have a website. You can check that out as well. Confidentstably.com. Yeah. Confidence, you're doing some amazing stuff in the in the cybersecurity industry, STEM for women, not only on the African continent, but obviously your impact has reached the shores of, of the United States here as well. So I look forward to collaborating more with you in the future. Uh, appreciate you taking time to join uh, the Leadership Student Podcast. And for folks listening to this, uh, these are the kinds of conversations that we're driving towards. We're trying to bring in leaders from uh, across a variety of business verticals and uh, confidence is a, a strong example of the variety and type of uh, backgrounds that we're, uh, that we're looking to, to flourish. So thanks for joining us for this episode and we look forward to seeing you guys on the next one. Thank you so much, MK, for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with MK Palmore, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to the ITSB Magazine YouTube channel, and share the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit ITSBMagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. 
We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.